depressing week. Very depressing week. I don't I don't I don't have anything to say other than that. Thanks for uh, coming to the podcast. <laughs> Not exactly the US's best uh moment here on on a number of different levels. Um yeah. Uh, we're pretty much going to just talk about Afghanistan this week, um, just because that's that's all we really have to have stuff to say about. Um, but yeah, definitely a, just a, a systematic failure on a number of different levels um, that I I think we saw coming um, to to some level to some degree. I know I know John and I had both talked about um, how this was an event that. We, it, it, the U.S. actions in the withdrawal definitely led up to what's happened over the past couple of weeks. We saw it with the, you know, announcement Biden made back in April about withdrawing troops by September 11th, which was a very arbitrary deadline. Um, and then pulling out troops very, very quickly without leaving enough in-country to... It, it wasn't as much a crisis of military failure as a crisis of confidence, um, th- this was an event where, and and I, I I think both of us had talked about this earlier. Where without the U.S. backing, a lot of Afghans just thought the the best solution would be, you know, let's just end this now. Let's end it as quick as possible. Um, Afghans, you know, a lot of Afghans wanted that U.S. backed government, but they also they aren't stupid and they're going to back the horse they think is going to win. Hmm. Um. Which, you know, we had talked about this, just a very quick withdrawal and would end in this. I mean, there there wasn't really a debate on whether or not that was going to happen. Yeah, and obviously with with the U.S. announcing its withdrawal, it, it was very much sort of the same uh, picture from, from the rest of the coalition. They sort of realized that with the U.S. moving out, there was going to be such a significant reduction in the number of coalition troops and, and therefore coalition air power as well, that a lot of nations just turned around and said, yeah, we, we can't continue this fight without the Americans, so we need to get ourselves out before we start losing people at a ridiculous rate. Yeah, and I I, I will say there, there were promises given by the US, of course, as we found out to the UK and in general NATO allies that you know, security in Kabul would would remain and we would keep the situation there secure so, you know, other countries could operate in in Kabul at least. Um and that that was a, a massive lie. Mm. Um and has definitely caused a, a crisis of confidence. I, I don't know, John, if you can speak to this a bit better about the current fallout, at least in um the UK right now. Yeah, I mean I've I've been uh, doing a lot of reading there's been a lot of articles by veterans um of, of all ranks and, and and all levels of of experience in afghanistan we're talking people with one tour we're talking people with three or four tours um and the general feeling is that with the the way that the withdrawal has happened and the way that the taliban has been allowed to take over afghanistan so quickly and 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 you know just with the the general political attitude towards it all 
I think a lot of the veterans are very much feeling like their efforts, their sacrifices were in vain. And we, we've got to remember this is this is a conflict that's been going on fr from our perspective for 20 years. Um, I think between the US and the UK there's been something like 2,800 dead uh, among our own troops just because of, of this fight. And it, it's very very hard not to agree with, with, with the perspective that after the way this withdrawal has happened all of those lives those sacrifices may have been to no avail um, yeah and and I know a lot of political leaders and especially military leaders will you know tell veterans that uh, you know their sacrifice wasn't in vain they you know brought massive change to Afghanistan but I mean veterans aren't exactly that stupid they can also look at the news and they they see what's happening and i mean it really seems at this point like the object objective truth is your sacrifice was in vain the taliban now have stronger control in afghanistan that they did in 2001 um before the u.s and uh, british actually coalition um led intervention but it just and this is this is what a lot of veterans are seeing, and this is you know obviously something that's caused issues. I I mean I've talked to veterans who fought in Afghanistan during the the first initial invasion, um, in that sort of you know October and and later period in two thousand one, and and they look at it and they say the Taliban were in a much more tenuous situation in two thousand one than they were today. Mm -hmm. They have much stronger regional control um, apart from. Uh, you know, a, a small government resistance in the Panjshir Valley, um, which will probably devolve into very heavy fighting over the next few days. Um, there, there's really nothing. There is no North anymore. There's no Northern Alliance. There's no Northern resistance because the U.S. went and effectively broke up those militias um, and, and, and basically created this power vacuum in the North that the Taliban was able to very easily take advantage of. And you just have the situation now where they have solid control over the country and that's caused a lot of depression and just angst for a lot of, of veterans who fought in that war and and there were a lot of people in the u.s who fought in afghanistan yeah. um and a lot of people in the uk as well and and it's just you know this sort of what were we there for if it's worse off now yeah and i, I think it's fair to say that in the uk we kind of we really started seeing that the situation in Afghanistan sort of hitting the mainstream news once we heard that locations like Kandahar um, were falling. And obviously the UK had quite a significant amount of history with Kandahar, um, it being one of several major bases that the UK operated out of during the, its time in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, I, I remember it was... Um when former Camp Bastion had fallen. Um, I'm forgetting the what it had been renamed to under ANA control. But um that was that was definitely a moment um that a lot of people looked at and sort of started to recognize the situation was going very south. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean again, a lot of us had sort of looked at that and I mean I was following it fairly closely. Um even back when most of the sources of information out of Afghanistan were very pro-Taliban accounts, which means you had to sort through a lot of conflicting information on both sides. And, and that, I mean, you, you could see there were, there were a lot of issues um, 
with the Af the Afghan government was claiming massive casualty figures on the Taliban side. I mean, I think yeah. if you add it all up over the past two years, the, the Afghan government had probably claimed that they killed over 100,000 Taliban fighters. Um, so you, you just have this situation where the media environment was very unreliable, um, but there was still this general attitude among Taliban fighters and among, you know, ANA forces that once the U.S. is gone, we're done for. Mm. Um and the cessation of U.S. air support um, earlier in the summer definitely, I, I think definitely honestly, yeah, I think from I spent some time looking back today before the podcast. You know, like the the turning point events that we were absolutely you know sure that like if you could locate one event and change just that one decision, it would change you know the outlook and the outcome of what's happening happening today and i mean the decision i had to look at was the de decision to to stop uh, uh air support for the afghan army mm -hmm. um that just caused i mean if we had kept supporting the afghan army um through to now um the the situation would be a lot more different yeah, they just and, they and just collapsed yeah and it's fair to say as well that without the U.S. air support, the, the the Afghan army's own sort of air support capabilities very much dwindled. Um, I mean, we saw very very quickly after the the Taliban started to sort of move across the country that Afghan army air assets pretty much just either capitulated or began fleeing rather than trying to fight. Um, yeah, because I, I we've had a, they... a lot of stories of. of Afghan army aircraft trying to get into Uzbekistan and, and, and some of the other neighboring countries. Yeah, and it was additionally, um, the Afghan Air Force, they, I know Biden tried to claim that, you know, oh, the Afghan Air Force, uh, you know, was built up and was strong and sort of just was useless at the end of the day. But, I mean, they had 10 to 12 track aircraft at any one time that were mm -hmm. usable. But the, the ground attack assets they had were more focused on um, liaising with on-the-ground forces. And the issue was the, the ground forces were not exactly trained and they don't have, you know, tactical air controllers. They don't have people who are trained in coordinating with strike aircraft. And so they would the strike aircraft would hit the wrong targets and they would, you know, they, they would just completely miss. And there was one case where in Kandahar, they bombed the regional police station because of a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, while, while the police station was occupied by Afghan national police forces. But on the other hand, U.S. forces were primarily built on um, identifying um, uh, uh, or locating, identifying, and then attacking all from air assets which didn't require much coordination with on the ground afghan assets so basically after the u.s had stopped striking taliban targets the capability of uh, uh, this air power capability against the taliban effectively evaporated um and so these were just these were afghan troops who had gone from you know their job was basically go out find the enemy start contact with the enemy and then the u.s will come in and bomb the enemy and it turned into you actually have to go out and face an ally who is, or face a, face an enemy who is more motivated, mm. similarly or better equipped, and you know, uh, 
you don't know where they are and they will set up ambushes and they will go after you. And it's just a situation that it was impossible for them to keep up because again, their force numbers were not great. Their strength was not great. Um, there was systematic uh, corruption in the higher echelons, uh, echelons of the army that were, were making unit strength, you know, 20% or less. Mm-hmm. And then there were defections because soldiers weren't getting paid. They weren't getting supplied correctly and they would just leave. And the Taliban sort of came up with this new sort of plan of attack when the U.S. announced that they were uh, pulling back of they wouldn't, you know, execute or they wouldn't harm soldiers who defected or who just, you know, abandoned their posts. They would basically just take them, give them money, send them home. And so it's just without that U.S. support, and I think this might have been underestimated, um, at least in the, in the U.S. Foreign Service, was just there was no real motivation, or not motivation to fight, but there was just this overwhelming just defeatism once the U.S. pulled back all support because there was just there was nothing to fight for. Yeah, and it, it's worth saying as well, you, you made a really good point about the whole air support thing. It's something we've seen time and again in modern history where when air support is not available the opposing forces can just absolutely you know ruffle stomp through um i, I mean the, the the example that springs to mind it, it's not a perfect example but um france in in 1939 1940 um the biggest issue the french had was that ultimately their air support very quickly fell apart and the Germans were able to push through on the ground pretty much unheeded. Um, and we've kind of seen that again with the Taliban in, in Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks, where the US air power has evaporated and suddenly the Taliban are coming out of their caves and, and, and wherever else and, and thinking, well, hang on a second, we, we, we don't have to worry about what's going on above us anymore. We can just deal with what's in front of us on the ground. And as yeah, you say... And, and one of... One of the big things that, you know, were that that actually ended up metastasizing was the fact that the Taliban could now move around in force. Mm. They could, you know, gather a bunch of Taliban fighters together and go perform coordinated operations where earlier, if you got, you know, more than a few Taliban vehicles together, that's a very juicy target for a JDAM. Yeah, that's exactly. A, that's a great target for U.S. air power. And they just they were able to move from this, you know, strict insurgency hit and run into and transform that into an actual offensive and that's that's again that was just the huge change that happened and i know and i i absolutely know that people in the military told people in the state department and and in the white house about that um because that that was just the reality on the ground um and either it was underestimated or unheeded or maybe they thought they had longer but it was pretty clear once U.S. air power had stopped and once U.S. troops were out of the country that, you know, the Afghan government was a dead man walking. Yeah, and it, it wasn't even just the, the, the U.S. strike capability that vanished, obviously. The, it Perhaps even more importantly was the lack of a, a reconnaissance capability that, that left. Because, as you said, that the Afghan uh, military's air power was limited in scale and ultimately... When the Taliban realised that A, there's no longer fast jets overhead, and B, that they're no longer being watched, like you say, they 
began to group in larger and larger numbers and ultimately the Afghans couldn't see that happening. So so they were yeah. effectively fighting blind and then when the big push eventually came a couple of weeks ago they had no idea what they were facing. Yeah. And the Taliban well, had been able to organize. The, and the Taliban they they started this, you know, pro they they started the beginning stages of their big push far earlier in the summer. Um and I know I was following this very closely. Natsek, Jeff, great person. Go follow him. Um, he's been just doing amazing work um, cataloging and, you know, giving people information on what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, but but we had seen that the Afghan army early, very early in the summer had mounted a very, very effective offensive into Kandahar City. Massive city. And it, it was just, it, it was this warning to a lot of us that, you know, wow, the Taliban now has the ability to mount large-scale offensives into very heavily populated and what should be heavily defended areas. And the Afghan government is putting up very, very little resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, just the, the end state of that, is, as I had also said, was, I, I believe I said this on one of the earlier podcasts this summer, was the Taliban are not going to have to fight their way into Kabul. They're going to waltz their way in because mm. once you start losing, you know, one or two major cities, the government's done for. Ghani is catching in the next plane out of the country. It's, you know, again, it's not that these are fair weather governors that control the outlying provinces, but, you know, they know they're not stupid. They know when, you know, everything is done for. They know when the situation is over and... We, we saw that. They negotiated peace settlements with the Taliban. Mm. And it's because they knew what the outcome was. Without the U.S., they were sort of just like, you know, what what's the point? Are we going to keep fighting just to eventually lose, you know, one or two years down the road? Or do we just, you know, give up now? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people in the Afghan army also understood that as well. And that's why we saw just such a rapid collapse. Yeah, and I think it's also part of the reason we saw such rapid collapse was because a lot of Western countries just almost refused to believe what was unfolding in front of them to start with. Um, we obviously, uh, there was a few tweets that really caught my attention during the first few days where it was senior officials in, in the EU and uh, also sort of uh, diplomatic journalists you know, in various news outlets, turning around and saying, "Well, hang on a second, we're you know we're still negotiating with the Taliban, so this is you know this isn't going to end in in tears." We'll strongly tell them in Doha that they should stop doing this. Yeah, it, that, that it, was... effectively that, and I think it's fair to I mean, say were... that we, we two sort weeks of... ago. Yeah. Two weeks ago, they were still announcing, you know, we're going to tell them to stop doing this in Doha. Like I just I. Yeah, it, it it was a complete political unwillingness to accept that the Taliban might actually be trying to fight this one, and that negotiations were not actually going to go anywhere. And it, it 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 just blew my mind that you had these people genuinely suggesting that diplomatic talks would be continuing, and that the Taliban would would still be open to a diplomatic resolution while we're watching the Taliban literally charge across the country and take, what, half of the country's capitals in the space of two or three days? 
Yeah, that, I, well, I, it was. I think I, I, think was... I said to you and, and a few other people that the, the the diplomats who genuinely believed at that moment in time that diplomacy was still going to be the result and that the Taliban was still going to ne- negotiate at the end of it were completely just mad, because once the Taliban realised that they were taking control of the country as quickly as they were, they had no need to negotiate anymore. They they knew the, that they were going to win was... this fight. There was zero motivation for the Taliban to negotiate starting April 24th of this year, when Mm. Biden announced that we would pull out by September 11th. There was zero reason for them to negotiate, because they knew they were going to win. There was was no other endgame for them, and so why would you make concessions? You're going to win anyway. So, you know, it's just this, this entire situation where there's just, there's a disconnect somewhere. And I think uh, these will probably be classified and never released to the U.S. populace, even though it, it'll probably, you know, be very, very necessary to do some sort of public postmortem on this. I, I really do truly hope Congress decides to, to do some sort of actual postmortem on what happened. Where was the failure? And I, I don't care. Subpoena people. to Ask people to testify. But... Figure out where the disconnect is so you don't do this again. Because yeah. everything about this withdrawal has just been just botched from mm. from step one, basically. And and you know we can we can put blame on every pre- every U.S. president who's been in Afghanistan. They each have their own individual faults. But even with Biden, even if he was handed a bad hand in Afghanistan with the Trump deal with the Taliban, yeah. He did not have to... He took so many unforced errors. Yeah. And it was just... You can't really explain those away other than he also wanted to be out of Afghanistan. So it's just... it's. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's interesting to note at this point as well that we've had, obviously, a story come out in the last few days that um, the U.S. Uh, Chief of General Staff, General Milley, uh, and the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State for Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, both went to the president and said, please keep a minimum of 2,500 troops in Afghanistan because the country will fall apart if we don't. And Biden apparently turned around and, and, and chose to ignore their recommendations, um, ordered the complete withdrawal of all U.S. forces, and then obviously we've seen... The, the result, and, and, and ironically now, there are more US forces in there than uh, General Milley and, and Secretary Austin originally wanted uh, to be in the country. Yeah. Um, and this brings me back to an original point I was confused on, was one of Biden's, or at least one of the State Department's arguments of why they didn't evacuate people sooner was that it would destroy Afghans' confidence in their government, and it would destroy government confidence as well. But my sort of and and I don't think I've actually tweeted this out yet but my my confusion on this is then why were you publishing how many troops you were pulling out and and making it very clear that you were pulling out every you know combat troop from the country mm. or combat personnel from the country it, it just it it really doesn't make sense how there was this I I it must have been a disconnect somewhere because I just the arguments don't make sense yeah and I think it's fair to say that the the, the disconnect is still there. Um, 
particularly at least in the US from 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 what I'm seeing over here um, the statements that have been coming from the White House some of the speeches um, that I have watched in the last few days have left me absolutely bewildered as to exactly what the US government really believes is going on um, I mean you, you they seem to be u-turning on themselves quite a bit as well um of note you know a couple of days ago biden was saying that the u.s military was fine that they were going to be able to evacuate everyone they needed to by the 31st of august um and that you know that they, they were perfectly capable of doing the job and fair enough but then today and, and yesterday in particular we, we've had these announcements now that u.s airlines are being asked to provide aircraft to support the evacuation because the US military just doesn't have the capacity available supposedly and and, and you have to third time in history all... um yeah. i i believe the actual mechanics of that was it ends up being actually cheaper to invoke the um CRAF um mm. uh, uh uh just invoke that because um basically the leasing prices from airlines are just it's cheaper to get people home and freeze up u.s assets to transfer people from afghanistan but at the same time like we shouldn't have needed to you know activate that with only a few days warning we shouldn't have just it, the refusal of reality is the big thing about this um i i talked to a a, a former uh, senior democratic staffer um about the situation and it was just uh, the the thing that they mentioned to me was just the complete denial of the reality of the situation from the administration mm. um saying things like al-qaeda is no longer a threat in afghanistan which is just, just literally when biden said that my feed was literally full of every single defense person person i follow every single analyst i follow every analyst who follows me saying what are you talking about that is very clearly yeah. not a reflection of the reality on the ground and not something that we have seen at all and it's just it, it almost seems like the administration is trying to just present this alternate situation where everything is fine and you know the taliban aren't harassing us and people are getting out fine and it's easy to come to the airport and then they you know two days later the state department says don't come to the airport it's too dangerous it's just yeah yeah, and, it's and a it's it, a denial it like of reality. Yeah, they're clutching at straws for a lot of it. I feel like, I mean, uh, uh, you know, as you say, there was that particular example. Um, Biden was, you know, just just a month ago was saying that there was absolutely no circumstance where you would see oh people God, being evacuated oh from the U.S. embassy's roof by helicopter, and yet we now have the what will I do not doubt be a, an infamous photo in the next 20 plus years um, I'm sure it will appear in, in school textbooks and so on of Chinooks and Sea Knight helicopters owned by the US hovering over the US Embassy um, yeah it's just honestly that press conference I think was so bad because like every single thing he said was out to be wrong in like yeah. in, in proven wrong in like a month like not it didn't even take that long and yeah. i think i think both of us had had live tweeted that press conference with you know just updates of what he was saying and mm. like at the end of it i just said this is all going to be wrong this is this is just this is all wrong it's it's and it's going to be proven wrong um i i 
I will say my initial predictions for the speed of the collapse was probably back when I made additional when I when I made my prediction back in April. Hmm. I said the the timeline for the collapse of the Afghan government is sometime around September 11th. Um yeah. And and I I stood by that for a while. Um I also threw around maybe an October date because I thought it, it might take a bit more time for them to collapse. Hmm. But as sort of time moved on and we got into that August timeline and those cities started falling quickly and then, you know, publications were starting to say 90 days and, you know, oh, maybe a few months. And yeah. by that time, I was like, yeah, it's it's happening before the U.S. gets out. This is going to be a very bad situation. Um, and it was just... <sighs> I, th I think it was during episode nine back in uh, June sometime i think it was sort of mid mid june we were we were discussing it and i think we both sort of at that point realized that the situation was not likely to last much beyond september 11th um i think it's fair to say certainly from my perspective when things eventually started moving they moved a bit faster than i was expecting um yeah but, but, but was, once they got uh, moving, it was it was fairly clear how yeah. quick they would they would move. And, and um, I think it's fair to say we both kind of knew pretty much from day one when they announced the whole ninety day uh, figure. I think we both turned around and, and and very very publicly said, "Well, that's a load of rubbish." Um, and I think I, I know Tom uh, Sierra Alpha uh, pretty much gave it what two weeks, if that. I think he said, yeah, um, and he was he was prepared to bet money on it when I spoke to him, and and you know here we are, a few weeks later, and yeah, it, yeah. it fell faster than we thought, but we were a hell of a lot we closer with that it, I guess, far, than we were... the U.S. intelligence services supposedly. Yeah, and that's the embarrassing thing is it, it fell a bit faster than we thought, but we were still far closer than what U.S. intelligence thought. Yeah. Um. Which I think is definitely maybe an indictment because we're just a few idiots with Twitter. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, and... it literally got to a point where we were saying 72 hours and it'll all be over. And the US was still saying, oh, no, there's there's, there's at least 30 like days. Three months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that, that, that is something else that is, is probably going to need to be looked into quite heavily in the US um, once this situation has more or less run its course um, how the US intelligence services with all of their assets, with all of their gathering capabilities somehow didn't see the fall coming as quickly as it did um, Yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say if, if they turned around and said a week instead of 90 days we probably would have not been quite so harsh on them but they were still saying 90 days when we were turning around and saying to our followers, no, they've probably got about 72 hours at this point. Yeah, um, and I think one of the main reasons that we were still off with our with our predictions when we said, you know, maybe October, September, that time period, um, you know, back in back in April when we were saying that, we look, everyone was calling us, you know, alarmists, and everyone was calling the French alarmists when they started pulling their people out in May. Um, but I, I think one of the things we had fallen prey to the same thing that I think the UK fell prey to was, and the other NATO countries, was that promise that troops would be kept in um, 
Kabul in order to in order to keep Kabul safe. Mm. Um, and I think we didn't understand really how gutted that infrastructure Kabul was. I think we probably should have taken note. Um, I think when Bagram, um, when yeah. the when the pullout at Bagram happened, that's when we probably should have taken additional notes of. I don't think the U.S. is going to be propping up the regime at all. No. Um, they're they're not going to be propping up the government. They're just going to be gone. Um, that that was definitely an element of of that we should have seen. And and I think other countries should have also taken note at that point that the U.S. disappeared in the middle of the night. They they literally up and left in the middle of the night without yeah. really telling anyone that they would be doing it. Um, and, and and which was and... just a sign of how complete the the evacuation or the the troop evacuation was because at the time we didn't bother i mean we were still arguing this summer about like where to house sivs in you know third party countries hmm. and like at that point in time we should have been talking about how we get them to the airport from the other parts of afghanistan yeah and, and it's uh, the whole pull out of bagram thing as well being sort of in the middle of the night and, and without telling anyone it's funny because someone brought to my attention um, an article by The Onion. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with The Onion, it's a satirical... Oh, that was me. Yeah, that, w that was yeah. me. <laughs> it's, it's a satirical news website. And ten years ago, they gave an article about the US withdrawing from Afghanistan in the middle of the night without telling anyone. And you, you, you couldn't make it up. It, it's in, an incredible read because it literally reads the way this situation ended up happening the, ten, the, 10 years ago to the week they had posted that yeah the, the, the afghan base commander had no idea the americans were going to pull out he woke up the next morning and found them gone and and, and yeah it was like you know it, it's just you know there's the, there's a there's a meme which has been doing the rounds i shared this meme back in uh, late june on my twitter account um and I think it's fair to say I didn't appreciate at the time how accurate it was going to prove. Um, we'll probably stick this on, on, on the YouTube uh, version of this podcast so you can see it. Um, but it, it's a clip from The Simpsons where the US effectively turns around to Afghanistan and says, yeah, after 20 years, it's so long, but I don't recall saying good luck. And... That, that that's very much how this situation feels. I, I cannot imagine how the Afghan army troops have been feeling in the last few weeks, seeing the US completely withdraw from, you know, all of the different bases around Afghanistan that the US was operating out of, and then suddenly all this news of the Taliban pushing in from all sides... It doesn't. It doesn't look good. It really doesn't look good for the U.S. And as I said to uh, said on, on on my own Twitter a few days ago, it does not bode well for the world's view of the U.S. in in other circumstances as well. Because ultimately, yeah, okay, we've been in Afghanistan for twenty years. We've not defeated the Taliban. They've now grown back, and it it doesn't look good. My hope is that we do not make the same mistake with uh, Daesh or IS in, in Syria and Iraq. Admittedly there we don't have as many troops on the ground so that, that side of things is a little different. But I think the US needs to make sure that it learns here that 
you've got to stay until the job is completely done even if that means you stay more than 20 years um, yes okay you know the po politicians want to avoid forever wars but at the end of the day you know uh, again something I've emphasized and I know a number of um, ex-British uh, military commanders from Afghanistan have also pointed out the fact that we have allowed the Taliban to survive the fact that they have grown back as quickly as they have and the fact that we're now effectively giving them some form of legitimacy in, in that they are being recognized now as as the de facto government of Afghanistan that is going to come back to bite us they may not be as severe a terrorist threat to us at this moment in time but give it a couple of years and Al-Qaeda will be back on its feet fully and we're going to see problems coming out of Afghanistan again and and, and that was something that Biden said as well which which really stuck with me he said that one of the reasons for the US withdrawal at this point is that the terrorist threat from Afghanistan has been eradicated. And we have the over-the-horizon capability to counter it if it pops back up, which is just such a denial of the reality of any situation. Like, yeah. you you can't do that. It, it's... It... The whole point of the of our our counter terror operations is that it's not an over the horizon presence; it's an on the ground presence. Look at West Africa. Look at you know having advisors in Indonesia. Take literally anywhere where we counter terrorism, we have boots on the ground. Yeah, that's just that's just a reality of the situation. And and John and I both, you know, have a background and 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 understanding of domestic security and and both of us are extremely concerned about practical threats coming out of Afghanistan in mm. the future you know as a home for potential security threats to to western nations and that's something we do not want to see happen again yeah. um and, and and it's and it's definitely just just an issue that we expect to see yeah, and, and ultimately there's a concern there from, from both of us. I think it's fair to say that because of the way the withdrawals happen, because of the way that the Taliban has taken over again, there is a good chance that, give it five, ten years, we're going to have to send troops back in there. And I, I, I think it's fair to say that that's every politician's worst nightmare at this moment in time because no one wants to be in the position where they have to turn around and say, yes, we shouldn't have pulled out, we should have stayed where we were. Um now, unfortunately, the, the the way that politics works, the chances are that the people who've made the decisions in the last six to twelve months will not be the ones who have to then overrule those decisions in ten, fifteen years' time. But it's, yeah, and, and does, it's a very real Clinton... possibility that we will be going back to Afghanistan, and I don't think a lot of politicians understand that at this moment in time. Well, they they don't care. That's the thing. Did Bill Clinton get blamed for nine eleven? No, no, of course, no one blamed Clinton for 9-11. And, and so there's this understanding that maybe as long as it happens far enough in the future, you won't be judged for it, um, or it won't affect you. But it's just, you know, look, we aren't war hawks at all. We're not, you know, cheerleading war, but, no. but we can also see the reality of a situation. And, and you know, if, if, there's, if, if there's another, you know... Uh, it, 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 if there's another set of terrorist attacks like, you know, God forbid, uh, something like 9-11, um, but, you know, maybe something more similar to the 7-7 the bombings as well, um, 
but it's just it, it's this this threat situation that that we are concerned about and that that we would prefer not to see and the the whole point is we we have a presence a very low low kinetic presence in in west africa that that takes barely any casualties on a yearly basis and is very very helpful in controlling the spread of al-qaeda the islamic state you know and and these fundamentalist groups that would pose us harm um and and you know it, it's also helping the civilian situation on the ground as well these are these are groups that commit massive atrocities and and i know people will you know say oh the governments are better no the governments that are in place are better there is there there is a a, a system of democracy that may be flawed but it's certainly better than than the alternatives on the ground and you know we we just we have this presence that you know no one's saying oh it's a forever war in west africa or it's a forever war in east africa mm. of course it's not it, it's a continuing long-term presence to protect us not just us interests in the region but it, but it's also for domestic security for both the us and europe yeah. you know the europe has a migrant crisis right now because the U.S. and I guess Europe as well sort of shirked their responsibility in, you know, keeping stability in these regions because, you know, people will say, well, oh, it doesn't concern us domestically. Yeah, it will end up concerning you domestically at some point because people can move. Like, you know, people don't stay in their own countries for their entire lives. Yeah. And you just, you know, external threat. Like, you know, it's it's not Team America world police. It's It's, you know, Team America preventing issues before it bites us in the butt again um and you know it, it's the world has become more interconnected do you what what global hegemony do you want do you do you want a u.s one do you want a china chinese one do you want a russian one do you want to go back to a british one <laughs> it's just you know it, it, it it's sort of a fact of life at this point that that someone is going to have to deal with these issues before they come back and you know end up affecting you yeah, and, and, and the political idea of avoiding forever wars, as they call them, it, it's kind of a dangerous like concept because ultimately the war on terror, no one has declared that over, so far as I'm aware. No one has turned around and said, oh yeah, we've defeated terrorism, it's all over, that's the end of that war. And ultimately the war on terror is going to be a forever war. Terrorism in all its various forms is not going anywhere. It's it's here to stay. And so it's ultimately a case of whether or not politicians are prepared to fight. And and clearly, it, you know, in, in, in the case of Afghanistan, it, it would appear that they're not prepared to fight. Um, and that That's doesn't bode it's, well. It's not because, even... as, as I said, the, the situation in Syria and Iraq is still ongoing. I think it's fair to say that we've been hearing, you know, claims that oh Daesh is, is is almost defeated or or has been defeated coming from, from Syria and Iraq now for probably the better part of a year. Um but realistically they still exist. And so US and, and, and NATO forces are going to remain, you know, operating in Syria and Iraq for the foreseeable future because ultimately they aren't gone. And as much as they'd like us to believe that they, they, they've won that war they need to be careful not to do the same thing in Syria and Iraq as they've done in Afghanistan, declare victory oh, start withdrawing and then suddenly find that 
their enemy is not as defeated as they thought they were. And I think I think the arguments to to end Op Shader are ha, have effectively been killed, hmm. at least in in Britain. Yeah. Um, that that will be continuing for a while. I feel I feel like a lot of issues for European countries was that it was a lot harder for them to project power into Afghanistan just because of how because the area the works. They needed stuff, yeah. they needed the U.S. support in logistics, which I think is a going to make a lot of European countries take a second look at their logistics processing capabilities and, you know, and say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be relying on the U.S. for a lot of this stuff because mm -hmm. who knows if the U.S. is just going to sort of leave us behind. Um, and I think second to that, a lot of them are going to look at, at being a bit more aggressive with, um, with, with externally combating terror. Um, yeah. and, and militant groups. And I think there's going to be a lot more support for that in the near future because it's just this feeling of abandonment. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I don't feel like a lot of European countries want to go through this again. Um, and so I, I feel like at least absolutely in the UK, absolutely in France, honestly, yeah. like any attempts <laughs> probably blew up about five years, 10 years progress diplomacy between the US and France. Yeah, I, I think it's fair um, to say France with, has sort of had its own lessons learned separately from Afghanistan as well, because we've obviously seen France has been heavily involved in fighting terrorists in Mali for several years now, and they've kind of also had their own realisation that their force out there is, is not really suited in its current format to the mission continuing. And rather than pulling out, as the US has done, they've decided actually we're going to we're going to restructure and we are going to go back in and, and and well sorry stay in and 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 actually continue this fight um and so i think france is is probably the one nation who's been watching what's been going on in afghanistan and and has been probably least surprised by the circumstances but also has probably learnt the most um from what they've seen because Ultimately, they those are lessons that they need to learn for for their own dealings in Mali. Um, yeah, and to be honest, that was probably why they were the most on top of the Afghan situations, arguably mm. more so than the U.S. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know at, at this point I'm I'm sort of prepared to pivot over to the real issue that I think we're very angry about, and that is the handling of the refugee situation. Yeah. Um, which is just probably the most unacceptable part of this sort of entire debacle um i know i've harped on it a lot um the u.s sort of didn't bother trying to get people out until, until there was no concerted off. effort yeah. until un un until after the taliban took the country basically yeah um because i guess there was a concern in the state department that it would reduce confidence in the afghan government but yeah. you know nothing like withdrawing your troops to do that as well it's just like even if you uh, like i know some people listening to this maybe you know you can argue against the presence in afghanistan you can argue against the war in afghanistan you can argue about everything in afghanistan military industrial complex all that the one thing that you cannot argue about is actually getting people out of afghanistan like there's there is no argument to be had on that. You you have to do that. You have to a get your own people out. You have to get the people that worked for you out. And you know, arguably the the moral obligation is you have to get anyone who wants to be out of Afghanistan out. Look what happened in South Vietnam. 
the U.S. would take literally anyone that could, you know, get out of the country after the war. And, you know, we're we're seeing this now that the Taliban is is an existential threat to, you know, journalists, to, to women, to women's rights activists, to any activist, frankly. And, you know, look at look at what Canada did. Canada took, you know, 20,000 people and, and it, the, the number keeps going up over that. Um, mm. And they, they prioritized, prioritized at-risk people. Um, and France and worked early well, on getting their... It's worth saying as well, Canada wasn't exactly a major military presence in Afghanistan um, when you compare them to sort of the, the US, the UK, uh, Australia and, and Germany and so on. Canada didn't really have as large a military presence. And so for them to turn around and actually say, no, we're, we're going to take X number of evacuees. And and I think it's, like, it's notable as well. Like when I was, uh, as many of you will be aware who follow me, um, I was putting together a list of, of the aircraft involved in the Kabul airlift for probably the first five or six days of that whole operation. And it... it the, the one thing that stuck out to me was that the Canadian uh, component of that airlift was probably the single like biggest, aside from the US, for at least the first 48, 72 hours. The, the Canadians were getting people out before the Brits and the Americans had sort of actually started sorting themselves out and getting themselves organised. I mean, the reality of this situation is the Americans, as of today, you know, the 22nd, the Americans really still aren't getting that many people out mm. because of the security situation at the airport. And that's that's another thing that we'll touch on even later. But yeah. it's just this other countries that, that are far smaller than the U.S. had far lower, you know, footprint on the ground in Afghanistan are just taking so many more people. Um, and it's just... It's just shocking to see. It's it's just it's. Hmm. I I don't really know any way to, sort of put it in in a correct um. Sort of frame, but it's it's just the abandonment of people who worked for you, who who worked in the embassy, yeah. and and who translators and and people who are at threat, who have faced persecution before, who have faced retribution from the Taliban. The Taliban, and the, the other thing is, the Taliban have these records on hand now. They have biometric records. They have they have the ability now to figure out, find out, and then, you know, most likely execute these people. Mm. And the U.S., at least the establishment right now, is coming up to, what, nine days from now, the U.S. will most likely be out of Afghanistan, barring some miracle of a foreign policy change but it, it's just it's this this refusal to accept refugees and, and just these these arbitrary roadblocks that got put up over the last few months in order to make it nearly impossible i think probably the best descriptor to the arbitrary roadblocks that have been put up was um the afghan forces who are still working at the airport who are now effectively stateless and, and just working for the U.S. right now um, as soldiers in at Kabul. Um, but but the, the official U.S. State Department policy is after we pull out, they can apply for visas. Like, it's just, yeah. it's mind-blowing how just... I, I don't know why this is. It, is it ingrained roadblocks in the State Department to immigration? Is it just... 
I cannot for the life of me figure out why we aren't getting these people out of the country. Yeah. And, and you know, there's another aspect to, to everything that's been going on, which, which is concerning as well. And I've briefly mentioned it in, in on Twitter and, and also in discussion on, on the UK Defence uh, Discord server. Um, ultimately, the world has watched the US response to the Taliban's rush across the country. They've seen how slow the US has been to respond. They've seen how limited the US response has been. And ultimately, they've listened very, very closely to what the US State Department and, and President Biden have had to say. And it doesn't look good, particularly if you are, for example, Taiwan. Now, now we had, uh, as some of you will be aware, there was a, a period during the Kabul airlift where Chinese media, um, particularly various figures at the Global Times um, and one or two other sort of diplomats and, and, and media outlets from China, very publicly started making comments about US presence in Taiwan and, and, and making threats towards Taiwan. And and while this is not unusual, the, the timing and the the strength of some of the threats that were being made uh, did did kind of sort of catch my interest and, 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 and catch my intrigue. And ultimately, at this moment in time, Taiwan has watched the US effectively betray the Afghan people in the face of the Taliban. And I can't help but feel like if I was in Taiwan right now, I'd probably be a little concerned that the US is just going to stand by and deny that there's anything wrong when suddenly China rocks up on, on, on my doorstep in the morning. Um, you know, it, it, it's obviously a, a huge issue there. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the, the, the US actions in Afghanistan don't look good for allies working alongside them in Syria and Iraq. Um, and it also doesn't look good just generally for the future of US foreign policy because it's going to have betrayed a lot of trust from nations who potentially would have turned to the US for help were they you know, attacked or invaded or were they struggling with terrorism and, 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 and groups like the Taliban inside their own borders. Oh, and, and even European nations, because the US promised safety and security in Kabul. Mm. And other other European nations, you know, relied on that and then just got, you know, terrible luck for you guys. Sorry, we're, we're out. Have yeah. have fun. You know, get get your own people out. It, it's just this... I mean, I, know I mean, that... the reality is the US, the U.S. made promises to other nations yeah, and then went back on those promises and now other nations have to scramble um, to, to handle it. And it's just, it, it may not be a reality of, you know, what would happen if, if China tried to invade Taiwan, but it's a threat. It is, it is a practical threat that other nations have to sort of take into account now because, again, actions speak louder than words. These mm. are actions actions don't frequently happen and and you know when when your actions end up speaking very loudly like this going into the future even if we even if the u.s says things to to try to appease these countries it's you know just look back at what happened in kabul and and you'll see you know of course chinese propaganda harping on that again after again because it is yeah. literally it is a free propaganda victory to them this is the entire Kabul evacuation system has 
the the entire situation has just been a, a complete unforced error. Yeah. It, it is a it is a a media or or a propaganda victory for China. Hmm. Which just that that is that isn't great. That that is not great at all. Um and yeah. it, it's just yeah. it it's it's a mess. Yeah, and, and from a from a personal perspective, it, it's it's been quite reassuring to see uh, large parts of U.S. media turning around and holding the U.S. administration to account for what's been going on. Um, I think it's fair to say that probably more so in the U.S. than in the U.K., there has been a lot of backlash against the politicians for the events that have unfolded in Kabul. Um, whether that has an effect on the way the US administration moves forward and, and, and how it deals with the fallout from the situation re remains to be seen. But um, I know that there's another uh, uh, matter that has sort of shocked uh, a, a great part of America and uh, I know quite a few people I've spoken to in the UK um, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, tried to contact uh, President Biden when, when things started unravelling um, in Afghanistan and spent 36 hours being ignored um, before finally getting a phone call back and again that, that, that doesn't look good but particularly on this side of the Atlantic, it really doesn't look good for the country with whom we, we always harp on about our special relationship with, for the leader of that country to be ignoring us when, ultimately, it's fair to say Britain is the probably the second biggest stakeholder in the Afghan situation um, after the US itself. And and this isn't like a minor disagreement or anything like like a little regional you know maybe a spat and you know that there's there's some issue over trade or something no this is this is like a practical issue where there are real ramifications for citizens of the UK and the US on the ground mm. and the the prime minister could not get an answer out of the US president yeah in in a situation that that they had been promised security would be maintained and that went out the window overnight. It's just, it, it is a multi-level failure. And and definitely, I mean, I know people will hate me if I say this, but it is has it has sparked a crisis of confidence in the U.S. by, by worldwide allies. Yeah. Um, and and it, I, we're seeing this fallout already happen in the U.K. This, this, this will be an event that causes fallout into the future. Yeah. Like really I guess, I guess the last thing we should sort of talk about is the, um, uh, the the afghan resistance hmm. that's that's uh, this is the only slightly bright part in the entire but it's not even bright it, no. it's just slightly less depressing in the sea of depressing that is this that that has been the last two weeks but um the 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 former uh 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 son of of the the famous resistance fighter um in the north the leader of the northern alliance uh, uh masood who was killed on September 10th, 2001, um, by by Taliban and Al Qaeda operatives, um, but he has sort of coalesced a, 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 a how do I put this a, a, a resistance group or or what is still I guess the government he claims um, in the Panjshir Valley, which is 
a, a, a very secure valley north of Kabul. Um, it's very hard to get in or out, and um, it's very defensible. The Soviet Union tried a number of times to, to mount an offensive into the valley, but got, got beaten back badly every single time, taking heavy casualties. Um, there are claims that the Taliban is currently trying to mount an incursion um, into the Panjshir Valley and um, not doing well, uh, because again, it's the it's the Panjshir Valley. It's it's effectively a, a forty kilometer long line of defensive formations. Um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. But uh, again, the the it is it is the government of Afghanistan. It is these guys are now the sort of last freedom fighters, and they are getting zero international support. And that's just. I understand the U.S. doesn't want to provoke any sort of um, issues with the Taliban, but it's just this this abdication of of principles, I guess. Yeah. Of of just you know, the Taliban are now mounting an offensive, and the U.S. will not help our, I guess you could say former allies because they're definitely not our allies anymore. Yeah, uh, as much as you know. As much as I'm sure they would love to have U.S. support, um, they they will be feeling betrayed, and uh, you know that, that again, as we've said already, that that doesn't bode well for the U.S. in the future. Um, you know, one, once upon a time, the U.S. was supplying weapons to its ally in Afghanistan to face the threat from the Soviet Union, and sure enough. A few years down the line, that ally was no longer an ally. Um, perhaps the US wants to avoid a repeat of that, but I, I think it's probably more a case of the US doesn't want to acknowledge that there is a resistance there at the moment, because if they acknowledge there is a resistance, they are going to face calls to support that resistance. And that, uh, you know, yeah, that's and a if they support the resistance, they can't deal with. Yeah, because, you know, apparently now we're in negotiations with the Taliban. Yeah. And I just... I, look, people people will call me a war hawk, but I just... I There there are some things that I feel that it's just an abdication of... Moral, not just moral authority, but... Just this understanding that, you know... I, I know the line, we don't negotiate with terrorists is campy and stupid, but... You know, these groups just spent 20 years attacking u.s forces util breaking the laws of war like like openly breaking every single you know geneva convention principle yeah. and and you know just straight up 20 years committing war crimes against u.s forces against you know uh, coalition forces against the afghan people and you know they're now just sitting pretty in Kabul while the u.s attempts to evacuate people it just it just it's this complete abdication, and it's sort of hard to balance. Yeah. I, I guess it's it's just it's very hard to accept that as the reality. And on that bright note, <laughs> um, I think that's where we're going to leave it today. Um, yeah. More will keep happening into the future. Um, we're going to keep following that very closely. Um, you know, hopefully the U.S. takes action and the U.K. takes action and other coalition allies take action to rescue former allies in Afghanistan. Yeah, that's 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 really all I can say is hopefully that's what ends up happening. Yeah, and ho hopefully next episode we may have some more positive 
news coming from Afghanistan. Um, although admittedly at this moment in time it's hard to see what positives can come from the Taliban takeover. Um, yeah, when when 800 people on a plane is your positive news, then, um, you know, stuff has certainly gone south. Yeah. And with that note, uh, thank you for listening to the OSINT Bunker podcast in collaboration with the UK Defense Journal. I am OSINT Technical, and that is John, a.k.a. Defense Geek. And we will hopefully be able to get back to you in two weeks' time with some better news. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you don't already follow us, uh, be sure to find our podcast Twitter account at the OSINT Bunker uh, on Twitter. Um, we've just surpassed 1,700 followers over there, so by all means go and give us a follow. Um, and we will hopefully catch you guys in two weeks' time. <laughs>